reminded of your great power and strength when we look at the world and us and so many days when it seems like nothing is going the way that we would choose for it to go. We are reminded that you are in control of this world and that you are in control of our lives, that you care for us in every way, that we do not have to fear what is happening in this world. Because you have a design that includes each and every one of us. And you are working all things according to your will. Father, would you allow that thought, that reminder and knowledge of your strength and power and sovereignty to calm our hearts this morning, to quiet our minds, and to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might be able to hear the truth of your word as you want us to hear it. Help us not to filter it through what we think is right but only what you want us to hear, Lord. May that ring in our ears today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. Back in 1922, a lady by the name of Corey Ten Boom became the first licensed watchmaker in the country of the Netherlands. She and her father ran the shop that her grandfather had started almost 100 years before that. The Ten Boom family were believers in Jesus Christ. And as Hitler began to rampage through Europe and persecute Jews and others, the Ten Booms started to help those who came to them. It is widely acknowledged that over the four years that they hid people in their home, they helped over 800 Jews reach safety and escape the terror of the Holocaust. They kept doing that up until February of 1944 when they were betrayed by a neighbor and Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. When they arrived at Ravensbrück, they were put in lines and they were assigned to a barracks and as soon as they get into their barracks, they immediately realized that it was completely infested with fleas. You can imagine how uncomfortable that was on top of an already horrible situation. And Corey began to complain vehemently about the fleas and how uncomfortable that they were making her. Her sister Betsy reminded her that the scripture told them that they were to give thanks to God for everything. You know that verse in Ephesians, right? That's a pesky verse. Give thanks to God for everything, Betsy said. Eventually, Corey grudgingly gave thanks to God for the fleas in their barracks. They had somehow been able to smuggle a Bible in with them as they got into the concentration camp. And so they decided to read their Bible openly. And what they realized was that other ladies were interested too. And so they began to hold Bible studies and prayer meetings in their barracks. And they noticed that for some reason the guards never bothered to come into their barracks. So they began to hold open Bible studies and open prayer meetings. And dozens of women came to Christ. Of course, they realized later that the guards didn't want to come in their barracks. You know why, right? Because of the fleas. In December of 1944, 10 months after they were put into the concentration camp, Corey's sister Betsy died. And 12 days later, Corey was released due to what they found out later was a clerical error. 
in just a week after she was released, all of the women in her age bracket in Ravensbrook were put to death. Corey realized that God had spared her life and she spent the rest of her time here on earth well into her 90s running homes for Holocaust survivors and disabled people and refugees and she began to travel the world and speak of God sparing her life and God's sovereignty and she wrote books, maybe some of you have heard of one of them, called The Hiding Place. God's ways are always good even though sometimes we don't see it. When we're in the midst of difficulty and pain, sometimes it becomes very difficult to acknowledge God's goodness, doesn't it? We're learning from the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And Joseph's life was one of hills and valleys, of unexpected successes and undeserved devastation. If you know his story, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks or you've been reading along with us through these chapters from 35 to 50 in the book of Genesis, you realize that Joseph went from being a favored son to a hated brother, to a slave, to a house manager, to a prisoner, to the superintendent of prisons, and then to second-in-command to the most powerful man in the world. And we're going to see that God used all of it to save the fledgling nation of Israel. Now our lives might not be quite as dramatic as Joseph's, although sometimes you may feel like maybe yours is. A little dramatic with the ups and downs, the hills and valleys. Sometimes we enjoy blessing, often we endure pain. But like Joseph, God has a plan for all of it. And here's the question we want to ask ourselves this morning. This is what I want you to think about today as we read through some scripture together and we seek to look at what God is trying to tell us. I want you to ask yourself this. Can we trust God to work all things out for his glory and our good? Can we trust him? So Joseph was thrown into jail. If you were here last week, we pick up the story there. He was thrown into jail. He was falsely accused, you remember, of sexual assault on Potiphar's wife. His, his boss's wife accused him of attacking her. Of course, we know that it was not true. And so he was thrown into jail. And there in jail, God favors him again, and soon the guy who runs the prison realizes that Joseph is very talented, he's very managerial, he has a lot of leadership ability, and so he puts Joseph in charge of everything. And while he's in prison, there are two other prisoners there, and they both have dreams about their future. And they want to know what their dreams mean. And they come to Joseph, knowing him to be a very wise man. And Joseph interprets the dreams. It was good news, bad news situation, if you know the story. Bad news for one guy, because he was going to be condemned to die because of his crime. For the other guy, he was going to be found to be innocent and restored to his former position. And Joseph said to the guy that was going to be restored to his former position, Hey, when you get out there, when you get back to where you need to be, Remember me. <laughs> Remember that I'm here and I'm falsely accused too and I need to be vindicated. Well, the guy was restored to his position, but of course in his excitement he forgot all about Joseph. 
And so Joseph languished, languished in prison for two more years until Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh woke up one morning and said, I've had this, I've had this troubling dream and I just don't know what it means. Is there anybody that can tell me what my dream means? And all of his wise men came and tried to tell him the dream and of course nobody could do it until finally this guy whose dream Joseph had interpreted said, hey, wait a second, <laughs> that reminds me of something. There was a guy when I was in prison who could interpret dreams. So they went and got Joseph, they cleaned him all up, they brought him in front of Pharaoh and not only does Joseph interpret the dream because of the wisdom that God has given him, but he comes up with a plan to handle it. You see, the dream was that there would be seven years of great plenty and harvest and abundance, and then there would be seven years of famine. And God gave Joseph a plan for how to handle that situation that was going to come to pass and how to survive it. And we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 41. I told you all that because we would have had to read three chapters if we'd have read that. So we don't have that kind of time. Genesis 41 verse 38 though, we come to this point in the story. And Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh just kind of gives Joseph the keys to the kingdom, literally. He says, here it is. It's all yours. Do what you need to do so that we can survive this, so that we can figure this out. Now think about this just for a second. If we go all the way back to what Tim was talking about two weeks ago, how does a 17-year-old disgraced, foreign slave become the most powerful man in the world? How does that happen? Only God's hand. Only God could do that. Look at Genesis 42 and verse 1. We skip ahead in the story. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Remember Jacob? How many people remember Jacob? Okay, eight people. We're going to have to restart Genesis. Jacob, remember? Schemer, wrestler who becomes Israel, who has 12 sons, whom God is going to bless. Well, they're all still back in Canaan. They're all still back where Joseph was from. And this famine wasn't just affecting Egypt. It was affecting Canaan too. So Jacob and all of his other sons and all of their families, they had run out of food as well. I don't know if you noticed this when I read this or if you've ever read this passage before, but I like to notice little things like this. In verse 1, 
You can picture this, can't you? Remember I told you when you're reading the Bible, you should picture what the scene is like. Did you picture this? Here's Jacob, and there's nothing to eat. And the other 10 of his sons, 11 of his sons, what are they doing? Do you see what it says? What does Joseph say? Why are you guys standing there looking at each other? Can't you picture that? They're all standing around. What are we going to do? Why are you standing there looking at each other? There's grain in Egypt. Go. Pack up the donkeys. Move it. We're going to starve to death here. And so he sends them down to Egypt. And Joseph's brothers come into his presence to get food for their families, and they don't recognize him. We're not going to read this passage. There's chapters and chapters here that we're skimming over because I want to get to the good part at the end. They don't recognize him. They come in. They're bowing down before him. Does anybody remember what we talked about two weeks ago? Remember what Joseph's dream was? They got his brother so upset. What was it? Someday. Someday you guys are going to bow down to me. They came in. They bowed down to Joseph. They didn't know who he was, but guess what? He knew who they were. (laughs) He recognized them. And I know some of you might think, well, how in the world would you not recognize your brother? If they came in there, how did they not know that this was Joseph? Well, you need to know a couple of things. First of all, you need to know it's been 22 years. So Joseph was 17 when they beat him up and threw him in the pit and sold him to the slave traders. Now he's 39. A lot happens between 17 and 39. But also, they figured he was dead. They beat him up and threw him in a pit and sold him to a bunch of slave traders who were crossing the desert. They didn't know where he ended up. They figured he labored for a while in some camp or in some house, got beat up because he did something stupid and died. They had no idea that he would even still be alive, let alone why would they even begin to imagine that he might be the most powerful man in the whole world. So they didn't recognize him. And he didn't let on that he knew them, at least at that point. So he gave them food, and they all headed back. And there's a whole bunch of other details and story here that we're not going to look at here this morning. But eventually, guess what happened? They ran out of food again, and they had to go back. Genesis 45, verse 1. They come back to buy more food. They come into Joseph's presence again. This is where we're picking up the story. Genesis 45, this is when it really gets good. Verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. (laughs) You think? They came back. It was about a year later. Can you imagine that all Joseph has been thinking about for a year is my family, my family. We didn't see a bunch of our family for two years, and I didn't think I was going to make it with all this ridiculousness that's gone on. And they come back. And Joseph sees his brothers again. 
And he can't handle it anymore. He can't hold it in anymore. And he just starts weeping to see his brothers. Is dad still alive? I have no idea why in the ESV this word is translated dismayed. Really a better translation for this word is terrified. That's the literal meaning of the Hebrew word that is here. Many translations use it. No translation is perfect. They were terrified. Oh no. We are dead. Right? We are dead. This guy is the most powerful world person in the world. And oh, by the way, he's our brother that we beat up and threw in a pit and sold to slaves. Now, if you have siblings, you can all right now imagine some awful things that you did to your siblings or maybe awful things that they did to you, depending where you were on the totem pole. But I bet you can't top this. we going to do? You thought they bowed down before. They were laying on the floor now. Look at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen, please. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which you will be neither, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Listen. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Egypt or a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. That's quite a speech, isn't it? Compared to what Joseph could have said in that moment, he calms them. He reassures them. Instead of ripping into them, he reassures them. Why? How? Because God did this. God sent me here. You didn't send me here. God did. He says it twice in that passage. How can Joseph respond in the face of everything that he has experienced? How can he respond this way? Because he knows that it was God's plan. God's plan to preserve his family, the young nation of Israel. Remember the promises? There's a reason why we started at the beginning of Genesis and we're going through here. Remember the promise that God gave to Abraham? What did God say to Abraham? I'm going to take your family and I'm going to bless it and I'm going to make it great. And how many children did Abraham have? One. One. And how many kids did that kid have? 
two. I was off to a slow start. But what did God promise? I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. And Joseph knew that God was the one who brought him here. Well, after this reunion, the guys calmed down a little bit, realized they weren't going to get their necks stretched. Joseph said, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to get your wives. I want you to get your kids and your grandkids and get dad and bring him here. I want you to live with me. I want you to be here together so that we can grow our families together. And so they did that. The boys went home. They got their families. They got their dad. They moved back to Egypt. Joseph put them in the most perfect spot in the whole country. If you read the passage, you'll see it there. The best place. Well, after a few years, Jacob eventually died. Guess what? All the old nerves start bubbling up again. Oh boy. Now the dad's gone. Now Joseph is going to lay into us. He was easing off because of our dad, but now they're fearful that Joseph is going to exact his revenge. And so they come to Joseph again, and guess what they do? What do they do? (laughs) Bow down again. Please don't hurt us. Please spare us. Remember our dad. Listen to what Joseph says in Genesis 50 and verse 20. Jumping into the conversation. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You guys hated me. You guys wanted to kill me. You guys wished I wasn't even born. You were jealous of me. And you really wanted horrible things to happen to me. But God meant it for good. God used it. You see, in his sovereignty, God does as he wishes. Always. Nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. You know, if it had been left up to these guys, if it had been left up to these ten older brothers, the nation of Israel would be gone, wiped out. But God used all of it to accomplish his plan for Israel. He has a plan for the world. As a plan for you. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this verse when I read it to you, Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Look at that verse. All things, all things, <laughs> your life must be different than mine. All things, how can that be? Well, Paul says God works all things together for good. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing that happens in our lives is good. How many of us can attest to that? But God takes all of the events and circumstances of my life and your life and everything that happens in the entire world and it will ultimately result in good. But there's a process there's a process that has to take place. It's wrapped up in that word, work. At my house, we love chocolate chip cookies. I mean love chocolate chip cookies. I'm not just saying, hey, I could stand to eat a cookie once in a while. I mean we love chocolate chip cookies. And we have a recipe for chocolate chip cookies that one of Melody's friends gave her at her bridal shower <laughs> a long time ago. We have it on this little card. And once in a while, we don't do it too often, but once in a while, pull out that little card to make chocolate chip cookies. Now, I have to tell you something. When you look at that list, it's hard to see how delicious this is going to be because you put raw eggs and melted butter, and baking powder, and sugar. Now I get the sugar part. Vanilla extract, chocolate chips. When you look at that list, there's only a couple of those that are really good by themselves, right? Even butter by itself, not so good. Go home, peel back a stick, take a bite. It's really no good unless it's on corn or mashed potatoes or bread or something like that. Only a couple of those things are good. But when you put them together in the right proportions and you mix them and you add a little heat, oh, out of the oven comes a cookie sheet. And that steel spatula, while they're still warm, slides under there, lifts that cookie up. I do this. I don't bite into a I, I do this. Peel off a little chunk. Chocolate chips are melting. <sighs> I might have to make some this afternoon. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Go home and crack a couple of raw eggs and hork those things back. Take a scoop of raw flour. A teaspoon of baking powder. It's terrible. But when you put it all together just right, when you know what you're doing... Listen, losing your job is not good. 
Your child's illness is not good. Problems in your relationships, not good. But God's sovereignty mixes all of these things together, all of the events of your life and all of the events and circumstances of this world, even the most bitter ones, to make in the end something good. In the end. Maybe not right now. When Joseph was rotting in that pit, was it good? No. When he was being accused of sexual assault, was it good? No. When the dude forgot to tell them that he was in prison and he sat there two more years, was that good? No. But in the end, it was good. You see, this is the crux of the whole matter. Can you trust God to work all things out for his good and his glory? Can you trust him to do that? Let me read you one more verse from Genesis. When Joseph's brothers feared that he would kill them after their dad died, listen to this verse. Listen to what Joseph says, Genesis 50, 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, listen to this, For am I in the place of God? Every single discussion of the sovereignty of God comes to this point. Every time we face something difficult in our lives and we wonder, why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Why do I have to suffer through this? I thought God loved me. Every time it comes down to this point. And every criticism of the sovereignty of God, every discussion of evil in this world, every time we experience pain, every raging rant that God is cruel and unloving is this presumption that we know better than God. You may not want to admit it, but it's true. That's at the heart of every single thing. We know better than God, right? Right? Go ahead, nod your head, right? Right? What happens when it's painful? What happens when it hurts? What happens when it's not going the way that you should? Why isn't this happening? Why does it have to be like this? How come God's not doing that? This doesn't make any sense. But God is all-knowing and all-powerful and perfectly good, and you are not. And neither am I. He sees all of eternity and he knows the plans that he has for you. And so the question is, can you trust him? But before you say it too quickly, because if we did an exit poll, everybody in the way, can you trust God? Yep. Can you trust God? Yep. Everybody say, yep, yep. I can trust God. I trust God. Yeah, I'm in. Before you say it too quickly, understand this. When you say that you believe in the sovereignty of God, when you say that you trust God, What you are saying is that even if he chooses not to fix it, he's still right. This is what Peter means in 1 Peter 4.19 when he says this, Therefore, let those who suffer, listen to this, according to God's will, 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you don't write in your Bibles, you need to start today and circle that one. Suffer according to God's will. When the boys came back to Joseph after they beat him up and threw him in the pit and sold him to the slave traders, you remember what they did? They killed the lamb and they threw some blood on his coat, took it back to their dad and said, Dad, look, I... I don't know what happened. An animal, I guess, got Joseph. And when Jacob saw Joseph's bloody coat, you know what he said? He said, it's over. It's over. My son is dead. This cannot end well. But it wasn't over. And it did end well. Because God wove all of the good and evil together, not only to save Israel, but to save the whole nation of Egypt as well. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but one of Israel's sons, one of Jacob's sons, was named Judah. And Judah had a son named Perez. And Perez had a son too. And 38 generations later, another son was born. And do you know what his name was? Jesus. God has a plan for your life. Was it a failure of God's plan for Joseph to become a slave, to be thrown in jail, to be forgotten? Was it a failure of God's plan for Jesus to be arrested, to suffer, to die on the cross? Of course not. It was precisely his plan because his plan was for us to have salvation. You've got three choices. You can say, I'm in control. Which is delusional because clearly you aren't or things would be going differently. No one is in control, which is horrifying to think about. Or God is in control. The scripture tells us that God is in control. And at this moment, whatever is happening, pain or suffering or doubt or fear or anger or confusion, you must choose to trust God. Because he is in control. He knows every detail of your life. He knows the whole story. Because it is his story. Once it was a little bird who lived at the top of a tree in the woods. One day as he sat in his nest, a lumberjack came into the woods and tapped on the bottom of the tree with his axe. Irritated, the bird flew away to another tree. The lumberjack walked over to that tree and tapped on it again, this time a little bit more firmly. The bird flew from tree to tree. Every time this process was repeated, the lumberjack would pound against the trunk of the tree every time just a little bit harder until finally the bird flew up into a ledge high up in the rocks and built his nest up there. Why is this guy bothering me? Why is he being so cruel, the little bird thought. 
until one day the lumberjack came down and started cutting the trees. See, the lumberjack knew that every tree in the forest was coming down and there was no safe place. Friends, the same is true of us in our lives. Every tree is coming down. Relationship, home, comfort, money, whatever it is, it's all coming down. And God knows there is no safety except in his arms. Use all of these little things, the little taps and the big ones, to get our attention and help us to understand that until we fully rest in him, until we fully trust in his sovereignty, and that he is working all the things that are happening in our lives and in this world together for what ultimately will be good, we will not have rest. Father, we are so thankful that this is your story. Forgive us for the times when we cling to it in our lives and to our comforts and to our wants and needs so intensely, demanding that this be our story, that we can make it what we want it to be. Forgive us for that, Father, and continue to gently remind us that we need to place all that we are and all that we have in your hands. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for being patient with Joseph's brothers and sparing them and sparing Judah from whose line would come our Savior, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would draw our attention away from all of the things that swirl around in our minds and our hearts and our lives and help us to see you clearly. Thank you for loving us so much for knowing every detail of our story as it is only a drop in the bucket compared to the greater plan of everything that you're doing in this world. Thanks for your truth. Thanks for speaking to us this morning. May we not quickly forget what we have heard. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. Have a great week.